This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the one and only Maya Culpa podcast, now on the Mighty Midas Touch Network. So look for the blue banner to find all future episodes of our show. And thanks for being here. Now on with the news. It's absolutely no surprise to anyone who's been paying attention that Donald Trump is a career criminal who uses every opportunity to line his own pockets. And Trump hit the jackpot when he miraculously became president. And now the proof that he profited while in office has been collected in a whopping 156-page report by House Democrats entitled White House for Sale. And boy, is it damning. The House Oversight Committee released the report on Thursday and provided documents from Trump's former accounting firm to back up the claims. They have receipts from 20 different governments, including China and Saudi Arabia, showing that about eight-plus million dollars went to Trump via his international hotel in Washington, D.C. and Las Vegas, as well as Trump Tower in New York. According to the report, and I quote, Through entities he owned and controlled, President Trump accepted millions of dollars in foreign emoluments in violation of the United States Constitution. (laughs) Of course he did. He doesn't give a shit about the Constitution. The Foreign Emoluments Clause bars the president and other federal officials from accepting money or gifts from foreign governments without congressional approval. In the forward to the report, our friend Congressman Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the Oversight Committee, wrote, and I quote, By elevating his personal financial interests and the policy priorities of corrupt foreign powers over the American public interest, Trump violated both the clear commands of the Constitution and the careful precedent set and observed by every previous commander-in-chief. And of course, the dumbest son of them all, Eric Trump, had to chime in because he was supposed to be watching the shop while his daddy was away being president. Anyway, Eric said in a statement to ABC News, and I quote, We do not have the ability or viability to stop someone from booking through third parties like Expedia, etc. No, Eric, you asshole, you don't. But Trump made a pledge to voluntarily donate the profits to the Treasury Department. And that number is nowhere near the millions that he ended up making. In fact, there is only a record of $151,000 being donated to the Treasury by Trump. It's a drop in the fucking bucket. So you understand why I say you're an idiot? I believe this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how much the family grifted off of foreign governments while in power. But it's great that the Democrats are finally going after every last cent. Thursday, both President Biden and former President Trump dropped campaign ads. Now, Trump spent his ad dollars attacking the only other Republican with any legs going into Iowa, and that, of course, is Nikki Haley. He claims that both she and Biden are soft on immigration and didn't support the wall. 
Haley is clearly more of a threat than Donald wants to let on. Especially in New Hampshire, where Governor Chris Sununu says Haley has gone from 38 points down in the Republican primary to just 8 points behind Trump. And I quote, It's really a one-on-one -on -one race, said Sununu. So now folks have an option, an opportunity. Voters polled in Iowa, where Trump still leads by double digits, say that Ron DeSantis, who's coming in second with a mere 18%, has, and I quote, lost interest in the race and appears to have given up. While Haley, who is trailing at 15%, is seen as someone trying to be all things to all people. In any case, Las Vegas odds have Trump winning the nomination ahead of Super Tuesday. Now we shall see, but President Biden isn't wasting any time on small potatoes. No, he went for the whole fucking enchilada in his first official campaign ad of 2024. Here, he's laying out his thesis for the election, and it's no wonder that democracy is at the very heart of his message. So let's listen to it. I've made the preservation of American democracy the central issue of my presidency. I believe in free and fair elections and the right to vote fairly and have your vote counted. There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement who does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? History's watching. The world is watching. The most important, our children and grandchildren will hold us responsible. The Vice President and I have supported voting rights since day one of this administration. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. America is still a place of possibilities where the power resides with we, the people. That's our soul. We are the United States of America. There is nothing beyond our capacity when we act together. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. The ad was released just ahead of speeches where the president used the backdrop of two historic sites in Pennsylvania and South Carolina to lay out his arguments for re-election, including protecting democracy and personal freedoms, something you hear each and every time that we go on the show and also ending white supremacy and racism. Well, no surprise to hear that here too. And no better time than the days leading up to January 6th to bring home the point that a second Trump term would mean the end of America as we know it. It's interesting to note that the Biden-Harris team is also preparing an alternate campaign strategy in case Trump is eliminated from the race and another candidate steps in. And now for the main event. We welcome back to the show Tony Schwartz, a former columnist for the New York Post and associate editor at Newsweek. He was also a reporter for the New York Times and staff writer at New York Magazine and Esquire. In 1985, Schwartz began interviewing Donald Trump to ghostwrite Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, for which he was given co-author credit. Art of the Deal was published in 1987, and some say it's what sold Trump to the public as a successful businessman. Here today, Tony is going to help us understand more fully who Trump was back then and who he has become. So let's go now to that conversation. 
Okay, so welcome back to the show, Tony. And of course, a very happy and a very healthy new year to you. So let's just jump right into this. My question to you is, how much do you think that hashtag that was trending, Trump stinks, that was all over Twitter and threads and all social media platforms, how much do you think that that bothers Donald? And how true do you think that the rumor is? Well, first, I think it would bother him a lot, as I know you would think, because there is nothing he hates more than feeling diminished or humiliated. And that's a pretty low blow, uh, a kind of attack uh, that you haven't bathed. Um, Do I believe Donald might not bathe or shower? You bet your life I do. Uh, I think he's, I don't think, you know, I think he thinks he's immune to all of the world's uh, influences. And so he could easily choose not to do that and assume that like the emperor with no clothes uh, behind a screen, nobody would notice. So I don't know it to be true, but I certainly think it will irritate him. Yeah, there's no doubt that it irritates him. In fact, when I was on my other podcast, which is called Political Beatdown, I just came up with the name Donald Von Schitzenpants, because that's really what they're referring to. Not that he doesn't shower or he doesn't use deodorant. That I, I'm certain, being the germaphobe that I know him to be, I, I know him to also be uh, clean when it comes to that. His hands are always uh, meticulous. There's never any dirt on his hands. Not that he's ever done any physical labor, that there would be dirt on his hands, but his hands are always um, very, very clean. I think that what they're really referring to is that he has some uh, issues that he's wearing Depends or Depend type diapers, you know, for adults. And that, uh, you know, there are occasions where it looks like the same way a baby is defecating in their diapers, that he is doing the same thing. Hence, of course, the hashtag Trump stinks or the Donald Von Schitts and Pants. Michael, you've uh, you've taken me to a place I didn't intend to go. I know it can only go up from here. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. It's been a long time since you've been on the show. You know, we kind of delve into into the dirty. But, uh, you know, so I think I'm going to stay with you on the same answer. I don't know the rumor to be true. It certainly appears, at least from photos, that, you know, there is a very large uh, puffy area from the belly button down that a lot of people have speculated are undergarments. Uh, so, you know, adult undergarments. No, so who knows? There is nobody else running for president now or ever before about whom anyone would be inclined to have this conversation. It's only Donald Trump that would prompt this conversation. Yeah, and I'm not really 100% Sure, I understand the reason why. I mean, there are so many other things that people could be talking about to disqualify him as the presidency. But I will ask you this, because in the same vein, how does it affect Donald when it comes out that he's been clearly inflating his wealth by a significant amount or that he was buddies with Jeffrey Epstein or worse, the allegations that he's a rapist? You think that that matters to him and you think that it matters to him now? Well, let's call through this. So does it bother him to be uh, associated with Jeffrey Epstein in his private moments? No. 
In fact, I think he probably thought Jeffrey Epstein was a pretty cool guy and introduced him to some pretty teenagers. Uh, no, he wouldn't mind being associated with Jeffrey Epstein personally. He might mind it for its public relations impact. Um, does he mind having being accused of having inflated the, his net worth? Immensely. Why? Because Trump, in his heart of hearts, confuses material value with human value. He believes that if he has more and more money, he is more valuable. He is more respectable. If he has less, he's nobody. And so when he is accused of lying about it, which, of course, he does to an extreme degree, I knew that as far back as 1986, that he was massively inflating what he was worth. Uh, yeah, he feels incredibly diminished by it. And what about the whole issue of being called a rapist? Now, what I'm referring to in this part of the question is obviously in the E. Jean Carroll case, it was determined uh, the sexual assault. Um, some, some people, and I have not read the decision in a long time, I don't recall you know, them using the term rapist. Certainly sexual assault uh, took place. What about that? Do you think that that bothers him? And especially when I say, does it bother him? Does it bother him now, as, you know, being the front runner or the presumed nominee for the 2024 election uh, for the Republican Party? I don't think, again, in, his, in the privacy of his own house or office, that being called a rapist bothers him. Look, first of all, we know that the original person who called him a racist was his wife, Ivana, who said that after he got enraged about his hair transplant, he raped her. And then she took later took that back, probably got paid a lot of extra money for doing so. But there is no question how many women have accused him of sexual assault, including, of course, uh, the full group who... Uh, we we learned about in the 2016 campaign. So yes, I I think he uh, I think his attitude toward aggression, anger, um, violence is to be attracted to it, not to be repelled by it. Again, he's running for president. Of course, he doesn't want people to call him a rapist. But you know, when I wrote about him in 1986, before I got involved with his book. And I uh, wrote a cover story for New York Magazine about his trying to harass tenants out of his building on 100 Central Park South. The cover picture was Trump as a thug, as a menace, as a criminal. That's how he looked. He liked it so much that he put it in the most prominent place, framed it and put it in the most prominent place in his office. Why? Because he loves to be seen as a tough guy as weak bullies do. Yeah, look, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. You know, I used to have conversations, you know, with him. And so interestingly enough, and he acknowledged, he's actually never been in 
a physical altercation in his entire life. Not even when he was young. Now, he did get slapped around. I know his older brother used to slap him around. He had a couple of scenarios at schools, like at the New York Military Academy, where you know he was picked on and bullied by you know other kids, which is truly hard to believe because he's always been tall. Right. I mean, like the way Baron is very tall and the way Eric was very tall. He was very tall, but he was one of these tall kids that just shied away from aggression. And if somebody was picking on him, he just basically ran away. I mean, that's the stories that I had heard, not just even from from himself, but from his sister, uh, Judge Barry, who used to say all the time uh, that she could kick his ass if she really wanted to, because he was just petrified of any altercation, which makes perfect sense why in these NFTs or in these projections like what you were referring to on the cover of the magazine, where he is portrayed as a real tough guy, as a bodybuilder, as a marshal, as a boxer, you know, as an astronaut. I mean, anything that promotes this sense of strength and power, that's, that's what he goes for. Yeah. Because, again, it's the exact opposite. Exactly. I think he's got a deep sense you and I have talked about this, and both of us have talked about it individually, but he has a deep sense of inadequacy, of weakness, that he doesn't matter, that he's not okay, certainly not remotely believes that he is the person he claims to be. So, of course, he's in terror because he feels like such a phony. He 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 recognizes now... The word recognition is tough there. You know, how conscious is he of these feelings? Maybe at this point, he's so defended that he doesn't actively feel that sense of inadequacy. And instead, he acts out and gets angry at other people and tries to demonstrate his power and all those things. But I have zero doubt that this man fundamentally feels like he is a worthless human being. Okay. So this is, it's a really interesting way to describe it because the way that he projects himself is clearly the exact opposite. You would think that somebody who has the extensive inadequacies or the feelings of inadequacies would not be seeking an office like the presidency of the United States of America, where you are constantly on, um, you have to be on your game 24-7, and every single aspect of your life is being detailed by a journalist who has all day, all night, all week, all month to get to the bottom of the, of the story, especially if it's one that, you know, does not project the strength that he wants you to believe. Why run then for the office? Precisely for that reason, is to try to demonstrate by being elected president and by being exercised, by being able to exercise the powers of the presidency that he is not, in fact, what he believes himself to be. He's looking for external markers 
to prove that what he feels is true is not true. Now, I think to run for president when you are as limited a human being as Trump is, when it's not just that your intellect is very, very limited, uh, it's also that emotionally you're cut off, that spiritually you're empty. The only reason that a person like him has the audacity to run for president is, I think, a function of his sociopathy. Trump, I feel, and I've written about this, uh, you know, I've written about the, uh, the, I wrote a piece called The Psychopath in Chief that is easily gotten on, on you know, by Googling it, um, in which my contention having done a great deal of research about it, is that Trump is not simply a narcissist, doesn't simply have narcissistic personality disorder. He specifically has psychopathy. And that's characterized first and foremost by the absence of conscience. He does not feel the same things that other people feel. You and I have spoken about this recently, that Trump is mm -hmm. someone who would walk onto the field in a football game as a coach and gather his players together before the game, and he would say without an ounce of guilt, look, we don't play by the rules here. Run outside the lines, sucker punch the players, go after the refs, lie about the score, and it would not for one moment bother him. And the story he'd be able to tell himself is that never happened. We won, just like he said about the election. He, there is incontrovertible evidence that he lost that election by a great deal. He believes, or at least he is un, he, he's not bothered by the notion that he's lying, that he actually won. He's perfectly willing to say that. Because to say anything else is to feel so small that it's unbearable. Right. Except how then do you explain the 70 million people? Let, let, me, let me not ex, you know, exaggerate on that number. Yes, yeah, 70 million people voted for him. However, not 70 million Americans believe in Trump's big lie. Let's even just say that it's half of that group. How do you convince 35 million Americans, 35 million, that the big lie is real. Simply because you believe this bullshit, how do you, how do you, it, how do you confuse them to the extent that they believe whatever it is that you say? It's a statement about the way people feel. It's It says more about Americans, to be quite honest, or those Americans than it does about Trump. And I think it's a function of the fact that people feel so overwhelmed, so impotent, so unable to create the lives that they would like to have, or in some cases, many cases, feel entitled to have, that along comes some guy who blusters and lies and seems to get away with anything and claim whatever he wants. And I think millions of people latch onto that as they have other autocrats through history to get some of what they think he has. 
some of the power that they assume he's able to summon in, in, in to affect his fate. And so I think it's not, it's completely inexplicable on rational terms. If you say about this, if you think about this logically, it doesn't work at all. But those 35 million people are almost completely being guided by their emotions about this, not by their brains or their logic. But Tony, we've never had that in America. Yes, I acknowledge what you're saying, that in worldview, there have been many, many millions of people that have latched on to what you know, autocratic leaders, to supreme leaders, to monarchs, to the Fuhrer. We've never had that in America. We're different. Democracy, which is a test, it is not a constitutional right. It is an experiment. We've never wanted, we fought. We fought for our democracy. We fought for the Constitution. And yet, he's still stepping up now and bamboozling these 35-plus million people to believe whatever he said. And even when Donald turned around and said, and he wasn't joking, something that you know well, Donald doesn't have a sense of humor, and he doesn't joke, that if he wanted to shoot and kill someone on Fifth Avenue, that he could do it and get away with it. He wasn't bullshitting. He really truly believes that as well. Absolutely. So I think the question you're asking me is, how could this happen in America? It never happened before. We've had a 200 year, 200 plus year democracy. Um, and until Trump came along, nobody really thought it was a threat. But here's the truth. No democracy has ever lasted forever. And people are flawed and people are, when they are overwhelmed, they react in survive in ways that they think serve their survival. Now it's the opposite. We, if we had the election today, I think it's quite plausible, not definite, but quite plausible. Trump would win, and those people who voted for him would find out incredibly quickly, as people who lived in autocracies and do live in autocracies around the world, that they are not safe because they voted for Donald Trump. He hates mm -hmm. weakness. He hates people who are not, quote, successful. And the very people who are, it's not only people who are economically disadvantaged or, you know, who, who are for Trump and uneducated, but it's a lot of them. And they are the people he will protect the least, with the exception of people like you and me, who he will go after. Right. But there's even more here and that you just brought up. Donald doesn't care for the economically advantaged, the billionaire class. Now, he's done things that benefited them. But one thing that you know and I know well is the one thing that Donald cares the most about in, in life is money, is being recognized as incredibly rich. If Donald becomes president again in 2024, it's actually the economically advantaged that need to worry more than the economically disadvantaged because he's already suckered them out of the few dollars that they can afford to give. 
He will go after the Bezoses of the world. He will go after the Elon Musks of the world, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Koch brothers, right? Or the Koch, uh, the Koch Foundation. He will go after all of them and do as a copycat exactly what Mohammed bin Salman did to his relatives. He will lock them up. Maybe it'll be at Mar-a-Lardo in there, uh, in the ballroom, the way Mohammed bin Salman did at the Ritz. And he will have them sign over his wealth, their wealth, to him. And he will do it. And everybody says, stop it, that's bullshit. You can't do that. This is America. I try to remind these fucking morons that look at what happened to me. Lured down to 500 Pearl Street by two low-level nobodies, this guy Pakula and this woman Phoebus, Enid Phoebus, who now is retired living in Florida, they gave me a document that they prepared specifically for me that violated my First Amendment constitutional right. Myself and my buddy, who uh, my, he's a friend, uh, lawyer, Jeffrey K. Levine, said, hey, this is really violative of the First Amendment. I can't speak to press. I can't put out my book. I can't uh, talk to, I can't go on social media. I can't do X, Y, and Z. Is there a way we can tamp down the language? Oh, sure. Why don't you wait in the hallway for us? We'll see after we speak to our superiors what we can do. Instead, they had already had the remand documentation prepared, signed, needed to get it over to the marshals so that they could have the marshals come grab me from 500 Pearl Street, handcuff, shackle me, and return me to Otisville. Because I refuse to waive my First Amendment constitutional right. So if anybody thinks that Donald, if he, like he said, rewrites the Constitution on day number one, gets rid of the executive, gets rid of the judiciary and the legislative branch, and confers all power to the executive branch, meaning himself becoming king, Fuhrer, monarch, supreme leader, whatever the hell you want to call him, that he won't be able to take their money. They're fucking wrong. Well, I do believe that one of the most intriguing people relative to Trump, should he be reelected, is Elon Musk. Because there's nobody who Donald would be more jealous of, with the possible exception of Putin, Kim Jong-un, um, in America... Elon Musk is the guy who has what he wants, which is to be the richest person in the country. So Elon Musk goes around now spouting Trumpisms and if if not supporting him outright, certainly being uh, generally favorable to him. And he's going to discover just like all the millions of people mm -hmm. who are, are going to vote for him will discover that you never get a good deal with Donald Trump. You give him your loyalty, he takes from you whatever he can. That's the equation. And it is remarkable, Michael, that the, as we were talking about earlier, that the powerful emotions that people feel around their own powerlessness have blinded them to a reality that's been repeated historically, both in Trump's life and in the lives of many other people who've tried to do or have successfully done what he's done in terms of moving toward a dictatorship, 
It's remarkable, but it it is a real sign of the decline of uh, of the uh, of the decency that turns out to be a thin layer uh, at the top of people or uh, around people uh, that can be overwhelmed by their fears. You see, one of the funny things is you take a look to see who Trump wants to side with, who he claims are his friends, right? The Mohammed bin Salmans, the uh, the Putins, the Kim Jong-uns, or the uh, Viktor Orbans, right? The But take out of that entire group of dictators, supreme leaders, monarchs, rulers, whatever you want to call them, take out of that group who are really the two with the significant amounts of money. And the answer is Putin, that some would claim is the richest man in the world. But then you also have Mohammed bin Salman because of obviously all of the oil. In fact, we know that what Mohammed bin Salman did on day number one when he became the, dep- the crown prince is he rounded everybody up. And then he went and he bought in one day a $500 million home in France right next to the Louvre. He bought a $500 million painting and he bought a $500 million yacht. In one day, the guy spent $1.5 billion on himself and that was post taking the money from his family members or the royals uh, there in Saudi Arabia. And if people say that, let's say that uh, Vladimir Putin is worth $500 billion. Trump wants to be worth a trillion. Well, just by taking Elon Musk's money, you're just about a third of the way there. Right? And so now you take Zuckerberg's money. You take, you know, Bezos's money. And you start putting them together. You've already exceeded the Putin number. He wants the whole world to know that he is the richest man in the world with a trillion dollars. And here's the thing. If he becomes the king, which is what he wants, if he is able to confer power solely onto himself, now he also controls the military, the military might of the United States, from nuclear to the freestanding army. Let me tell you something. It's it's really an unstoppable, it's an unstoppable maniac. Yeah, well, I pray every day that that does not turn out to be the case, uh, because I do think he is capable of infinite harm. I mean, I I remember saying to Jane Mayer of The New Yorker when she was writing a piece about my experience in 2016 that, you know, when Trump had his finger on the nuclear button, um, you know, we were deeply at risk because... If he feels offended enough or small enough, if he feels the hunger to assert his power and dominance, uh, his impulsive, reactive capacity to blow up mm-hmm. the world cannot be underestimated. He he absolutely can do that. The only reason he wouldn't do it at this point. He didn't think he could get away with it in the past, I suspect, in his first administration. Um, The only reason he wouldn't do it is because he doesn't want to die. And, you know, 
But as he gets closer in age to that moment in time, he doesn't care. If I have to go, you should all go too. I don't think that's true, Michael. I think what happens to people who've lived very unsatisfying, deeply screwed up lives, who've been who were wounded early and never recovered, is that the closer they get to death, the more terrified they are. Because the people who can make peace with the reality of death are the people who have had a good life and who can say, as I hope I'll be able to say, because I'm 72 years old, I know I'm, my life is not infinite, that I hope what I'll be able to say is, I, I got my shot. I had a good life. I made a difference. I contributed. I got satisfaction. I'm proud of my kids. He can't say any of that. Except in, and that's why, and that's why life to him doesn't mean uh, your life means nothing. My life means right. nothing. Everybody's life in the world means nothing. So if he needs to go out with a bang, he'll go out with a bang. I I don't I, I agree with you right up until the bang. I don't think he wants to go out. You know, I remember somebody I knew very very well, a close friend of my family, and his. 90s when he was dying and I was there in the, in his room you know a number of days before he died he was climbing the walls about about his imminent death and I it was so obvious that the reason was because he'd had an unlived life and he could not bear the thought that he was going and would never get that life and I'll tell you this whole discussion about 500 million here and uh, the different billionaires. Think about this, Michael, and you've had enough experience around these people to know a lot about this. You get past, take your number, 100 million, 500 million, you know, maybe even less. And you have now purchased all the things or you have the ability to purchase all the things that people can buy. What is the meaning to a Musk or a Jeff Bezos of having a couple hundred billion dollars. It has literally no impact on their everyday experience. It will when Donald comes and takes yeah, it all. Yeah, they'll feel bad about it because they live, by the way, all those people who have devoted their lives to having hundreds of millions or hundreds of billions of dollars, have been following an illusion. It's just another addiction. And it's that's mm -hmm. what you have to understand about the chasing of money. It's an addiction. It's like alcoholism. It's like drug addiction. Why? Because what you do is you have a feeling that something that you do, drinking or making a lot of money, is going to give you relief. It's going to make you finally feel better. It's going to give you an escape from your deepest pain. And it does the first time. So you get the first amount of money or you get the first time that you're drunk enough that you don't feel pain and you think, I got it. And then you, what you discover very quickly is that you have to keep doubling the dose. Trump has been doubling the dose since he was 16 years old, maybe earlier. He's been trying to find outside himself what is missing inside, and it's more elusive than ever. Were it not more elusive, he wouldn't be running for president. He's running for his life. He's running because there is no way for him to feel 
any sense of worth without being reelected president. And when he so let me ask you this yeah. then. Yeah. Well, I was just going to so say when he's reelected, if he's reelected, I hope he's not. But if he's reelected, in ten minutes it won't be sufficient. No matter how much money he takes yeah. from these other people, no matter how much chaos yeah. he creates, no matter how power he exercises, it won't be enough. Well, then let me just let me just go into his background a bit because Trump's grandfather was an immigrant. And apparently, according to news reports, was a pimp and a slimeball. Then, of course, his father, Fred Trump, was a slumlord and also documented a racist. So how has Trump's family history sort of shaped him personally and informed him of his worldviews? I mean, that's... That's such a huge question, and it probably is one of the things that interests me most, is what shapes a human being? And the number one, far and away the most important thing that a child needs is to be loved, protected, seen, and valued when they are most powerless. And Trump grew up with a father who was emotionally completely in, incapable of expressing or feeling emotions other than anger, much like Trump himself. And his mother was neglectful, just wasn't involved in his life. Neither of them were capable of providing emotional security, love, reassurance, and neither of them were available to see him. You discover who you are because other people, before you've got that power in yourself, see you. And he never got any of that. He is part of a intense generational trauma that got visited probably long before his grandfather because the grandfather became a slime ball and a pimp because of what something related to the, his caretakers, probably his parents. So this legacy of trauma, you know, I believe that trauma is normative, that it exists along a spectrum. What do I mean by this? I mean that trauma is an everyday and common experience in human beings. And it's Trump's is at the far extreme, perhaps, um, not even the far extreme, just in terms of what could have happened to him, but that we all go through very, very significant experiences of feeling inadequate, of feeling unprotected, of not being seen. And if we don't reckon with them, we visit that pain on others. That's what Trump has done in spades. Hmm, great. Well, speaking about something that hasn't been seen, Melania, or as we like to call on this show, melanoma, has been visibly absent from Trump's side for literally the last however long it's been. I mean, it's been a long time. Alina Haba is now the female that is most seen on Donald's arm. So first of all, I want to ask you this. What's Trump's relationship to women in general? And do you think that there are any women that Trump actually loves and respects? So let me start with this. Trump is incapable of love. Period. Full stop. So there isn't that capacity within him. Or if there is, it's so buried that we will never see it. 
As for women, with men, what he wants to do is best them, defeat them, be bigger than them, use them. Alpha male. Pardon me? The alpha male. The alpha male. With women, his feeling is actually a purer hatred. And I suspect... And you're seeing me here be an armchair psychiatrist. I accept that if somebody says, on what basis do you say that? I would say simply, I have spent my life studying human behavior, but take it for what it's worth. I think that his mother's neglect, the fact that, you know, look, if you grow up with a father who's utterly absent, not just emotionally absent, but physically absent, because his father never spent any time at home, how do you get a sense of your own worth? So he looked, as many boys do, to their mothers to feel loved and to feel safe. And so he didn't get any of that. And, you know, we suffer the consequences. Yeah. Well, look, I do know that he respected his sister, Judge Barry, whether he loved her or not. That I couldn't attest to, but I do know that he respected her for all of her achievements, um, you know, from uh, going to law school to becoming a federal court judge. In fact, he, while I know he respected her, he actually also feared her. He was, and he would say, you know, she scares the shit out of me. And I said, I can't believe it because, you know, I was fortunate enough to spend time with her and she's a lovely lady and she wouldn't be somebody that, so he goes, oh no, she could be as tough as nails. But let me then move on and ask you this because Trump is regularly accusing Joe Biden of doing all of the unethical and all of the illegal things that he himself is doing or has done. Look, take a look at my book, for example, Revenge. How Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics. So what does Donald Trump do? He then claims it's the Biden administration that's weaponized the Justice Department to go against him, right? It's called transference or projection. projection. In, your, in your research... Have you found that this has always been how Trump sidesteps responsibility? This is a cardinal aspect of his character. is, And it, and it happens, I assume, unconsciously. Whenever Trump says something hideous about someone else, it almost mm -hmm. always is a projection of what he's feeling about himself but is unwilling to own. And in his case, he stretched it to preposterous lengths because the things that he is most guilty of, he then accuses others, like Biden, of being guilty of, and often those people are the least guilty of it. So the gap between what he, the ways in which he embodies his accusations and the ways in which those he accuses don't manifest them at all is huge. It's a yawning gap. And it is a way of defending yourself. You know, most of us, Michael, build up a series of defenders in our childhood. So you're as a child, you are the most vulnerable you will ever be. You require care to survive. And when you don't get what you need, you're not able to give it to yourself. So over time, what happens 
early in your life, could be as early as 7, 10, 12, you start to develop these defenders, these ways of coping. And one of them for Donald is to project, is to see in other people the weakness or the failure that he does not want to own in himself. That's a defender. The, the need for money is the work of a defender. What he doesn't have access to, and most of us don't, is the core self, is the self that never, the core self is the self that never worries about its value because it experiences an intrinsic sense of value. And if you can be run, the whole world would change so dramatically if first people could begin to own their defenders, meaning, yes, that's true of me. I can get angry. I can be, I can be dishonest in certain situations. But that's not all of me. My core is goodness. We've lost the connection. We never had that much. But particularly in the face of all the, the things happening in the world that are scary, we've lost this connection to our core self because our defenders are on survival alert. They just want to make sure that we're okay. They just want to survive till tomorrow. Without that connection to the core self, and I'm talking to you about something that I have discovered, I actually, this is going to sound crazy to you, Michael, I actually give Trump some credit for what's happened for me in my life positively. Because Trump, during the period that I wrote that book with him, became the embodiment to me of what I did not want to be. And in doing that, he steered me away from the kinds of things that I might otherwise have been attracted to. And I sit before you today, able to say to you, I'm at peace with myself. I am at home in my own body. Do I think I'm perfect? Not remotely. Do I think I have ways in which I show up badly at times? Yes. But I'm deeply aware of a core goodness. I know if other people could have the experience I'm having, that we'd have a different world. Donald Trump will never know that, never get near it. And it is a fight between good and evil <laughs> to the end. Right. So then what's the best defense against Trump? As in, what do you think is most likely to upset him the most? And more importantly, it's like, what sort of criticism do you think will get through to his base and change their minds about him? I have not been successful. Now, I've been successful in building a community, whether it's the Maya Culpa community or my other podcast that I do on the Midas Touch Network with Ben Micellis called The Political Beatdown that we do live on YouTube. We have a massive audience between the two, millions of people. These are the people that are like-minded as you and I are. I cannot get through to change the minds of people who are supporting him. And it drives me crazy. I have friends that I will not speak to 
right now. Some whom I care very, very much. I have helped them in their lives. They have been there for me during bad times in my life. And I just refuse. And I get into this, you know, this, this um, argument with my wife all the time where she'll be making dinner reservations uh, for the four of us to go out or for as a six part. Not interested. Because every time we get together, they spew off the Fox bullshit. They spew off the Trump lies. And I say to them, how could you be so fucking stupid? I mean, we were literally at a restaurant not, not more than about three weeks ago, maybe closer to a month. And I said, why don't you get up? It's my reservation. This is my, this is my reservation, my restaurant. Why don't you get up and get the fuck out of here? Because I can't sit and listen. When I watch Fox, I'm only watching it so that I have material to discuss, like here on Mayor Culper Political Beatdown. I'm not buying the bullshit that Sean Hannity or any of the other hosts, you know, are spewing. What can we do to change the minds of this of his base? Yeah. So, Michael, you're in some ways one of the best positioned in the world to know how that happens because you were a true and total believer and now you are at the opposite end of that spectrum. So you went through that trans transformation. Something happened to you that made you, that let you out of the spell that you were in along with all the people you were working with. I think what happened, but you're in a position to say this better than me, but what I would say happened to you is the pain of what you were experiencing and who you were finally exceeded the pain of looking into yourself at what was going on and at what frightened you. And, you know, pain is generally the only you know reliable way to get people to change most people don't change because they see a better possibility they change because they cannot tolerate the the present reality that they're living in and so you tell us as opposed to me telling you but how do we help people who are not allow her finding ways, including supporting Trump, to avoid the pain that they're really feeling? How do we get them to recognize that the way we're living and the way we're working isn't working and it isn't living? This isn't this is not the promised land. And and it's getting worse. And nobody, almost nobody doubts that we are in a period now of tremendous decline. So when do people translate all of those pains they're seeing outside themselves into a mandate to take themselves on? Because the reality is when you can embrace all of who you are for better and for worse, you have nothing left to defend. And when you don't have anything left to defend, no more wars, no more conflict. You accept. You start by accepting yourself in all your various forms. And then by accepting yourself, you free yourself up 
to accept and love others. You know, there's this is going to really send your audience to a different place and perhaps make them think that I'm uh, way off here on the woo-woo side. But, you know, there's a uh, Lennon Doyle, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners at least know the name, but is a, you know, a very popular podcaster and and author, um, you know, had an interview with recently with, um, oh my gosh, am I now going to forget her name? Um, I am going to, um, maybe it'll pop back into my head, but the person she had on the show said that she now had a practice in which she would ask herself every morning about the issues that were up for her. What would love say here? What would my heart say here in dealing with whatever the situation is? And love or the heart is the core self. And even though it's covered over for many people, it's there somewhere. And if I ask myself, since I was told this just a couple of days ago, if I ask myself, what would my heart say in this situation? It is often saying something to me very different than all my defenders, all my instinctive mm -hmm. uh, impulses are, are getting me to say. You see, Tony, I don't think that the base will change their minds regarding him, no matter what. The only way to change their minds is, sadly, they're going to have to get, and this is proverbially, smashed in the mouth with a baseball bat. I agree. And when they're spitting out their teeth because they think that Trump is the savior, that he's the second coming of Christ, that's a real problem, and they will ultimately learn, as this country is now learning with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which he takes credit for, they will understand that their rights to do as legally permitted, as the Constitution permits, is all going to change. And that they will not be financially better off. They will be financially worse off. Not only financially worse off, they are going to lose rights that they cannot believe could even be taken away. Like the right to determine, you know, your, as, a, as a woman, your right to decide, your right to choice. What's going to happen with, for example, like Obergefell, same-sex marriage or interracial marriage? What's going to happen with, you know, uh, your right to choose the religion and to the God to whom you pray? Under MAGA Mike Johnson, he wants to make the United States of America into a Christian nation. That's his goal, is to return America to a Christian nation. By the way, hey, fucking moron MAGA Mike, we were never a Christian nation. So it's really kind of funny. They have, they make up their own ideals and they try to transfer it to everybody else. And that's when the minds of these people will be changed. The problem, it's going to be too late. Once you lose that right, you're never getting it back. I agree with that. I mean, I don't have more to add to that because I think that's true. I don't, I, until people experience the pain that Trump inflicts on them, directly, harshly, yep. they will not change. Yep. And by the time, if that were to happen, if he were to be reelected, then that will be too late. So the answer is 
the big, big thing you can do, the only thing you can do is get somebody who wouldn't, you're already, you know, your, your, your listeners are already going to vote against Trump, but get somebody else who either wasn't going to vote or was going to vote for Trump, but especially wasn't going to vote for whatever reason to vote because you're voting for your life. There's no question. I mean, you're right. Now think about it this way too. If by some miracle of God, the Supreme Court rules that the 14th Amendment, specifically Section 3 of the Constitution, bars Trump from running for office because he's an insurrectionist. How does Trump respond? Because I'm assuming, knowing him as well that I does, that the guy doesn't get onto the horse and just ride off into the sunset. No, what he does is he tries to marshal his supporters in a violent way to fight back. He tries to do in the United States what he's already done in Washington on January 6th, 2020, 2021. Yep. Just on a bigger yeah. scale. That's what he'll do. I mean, and they, there's, you know, that that hatred and anger and frustration is building up inside those supporters. You know, um, they're they're still, I think, people who can be called on to do terrible things. We've seen it before, Michael. Yep, that we have. But sooner or later, and I think you'll agree with this, sooner or later, all of Trump's appeals will run out, the cases will be in court, and Trump is going to be in court, unable to control the legal outcomes. Now, knowing that Trump needs to be in control, because he is a control freak, how do you think that he's going to even do in court, particularly if and when he has to testify. Well, the big question, Michael, is whether those court dates will happen between today and election day, or even a month before election day. Because once he's elected, uh, all bets are off and he can start to interfere with the judicial system. So will he get convicted of a crime or multiple crimes before the election in November? That's the key issue, because I do believe, and the polling seems to suggest this, little as we can believe polling at this stage, but the polling does seem to suggest that if Trump is convicted of a crime, that will move a small percentage of his supporters from yay to nay. It's going to be decided once again by a small number of votes. So that's why I'm saying, I want to go back to what I said to you a moment ago. If you, if every person who's going to vote for Joe Biden could go to one person they know who otherwise wouldn't vote, that would change everything. So there is something each person can do. You can change one person's mind or activate one person who's apathetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, to I, I totally agree with you. And I constantly tell people, you got to make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure that the rest of your family are registered you know, to vote. Because a lot of people, they just leave it to the uh, last so minute and then they forget. And then they're apathetic and they don't, don't end up going. But look, we all know Trump's authoritarian bent and calls for violence are all part of that strongman act. Because as we were talking about in real life, believe me, right? This hostile rhetoric doesn't exist, but the way he's framing it makes it extremely dangerous.
No question. Have you been threatened by Trump followers as I have? <laughs> you know, interestingly, I haven't. I have no idea why that is, but you're a lot more famous than I am. Well, I, I don't know about that. I certainly am probably more really? public yeah, more in the than, public than most people. And as a direct result, I can't tell you the number of people. But, you know, we, we I, before I go into that, I wanted to sort of bring something up because she said that's if the cases against Donald, there are right now four indictments, potentially five if they bring it in Michigan. But guaranteed, the Alvin, if the Jack Smith case for the election interference which is now on hold, does not proceed March 5th or March 4th, whichever date it is, I am certain that the state criminal case, which is brought by Alvin Bragg and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, will go forward on March 25th. That's when it's starting, and there is no delay. There is no appeals for them to file. There's absolutely no delay tactic. That case is an easy case, and they, I think they only have it slated for like six or seven weeks in terms of a trial, meaning it's over by June 1st, right, um, give or take. And this is a bench trial, so it's not as if you're even going to have – time for the jury to deliberate, there's a bench trial by Judge Ngoron. I'm sorry, that's, the, that's my, that by Judge Mershon, it, it, it is a jury trial. Um, so they will then have their deliberation. I still say sometime in the beginnings of June, this case is decided. And knowing the case as I know it, the documents speak for themselves. And the testimony of not just myself, but of many other people who have testified clearly shows his guilt. The, the problem, as I'm sure you're aware, is that will his supporters see that outcome in the same way they would, for example, the Georgia case, which is about election interference, or the Washington case, which is about insurrection, in the same way that they see a, uh, you know, the the case that you're talking about, which seems relatively less, you know, critical. Agreed. However, in the January in the January 6th instruction, that's a that's probably a year-long trial because they have a thousand yeah. witnesses, there's tens of millions of documents. This is only a handful, maybe, you know, maybe 10 witnesses in total, and maybe a hundred, two hundred documents in total. And while you may think it's trivial and you may think it's petty, it is what it is. And here's something more important. It it is actually is touched by Donald's hands, meaning the checks are written and signed by Donald. The affair was with Donald, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Whereas, you know, he could claim with the election interference. Uh, or with the voting uh, machines that, well, these were other people that were doing it and he shouldn't be held accountable for other people, right? That's, of course, part of their argument. This one, he directly has his fingerprints on and nothing, nothing less. But, you know, Tony, the hour goes by very quickly here on mea culpa. So I have one last question for, here, um, for you here. You've said, and I quote, 
Our challenge is to hold on to our hope and our outrage without being hijacked by our fears. With the election looming, how do you propose we even do that? You know, we can do hard things. We can hold opposite feelings. So I even amend slightly what you just read back to me, which I know I did say. But what, the way I'd amend it is to say, it's okay to feel fear. It does not mean that you cannot move forward. People feel fear. And there's, you have every right to feel fear right now. The question is whether the, feel, whether the fear galvanizes you or whether it keeps you from moving. So stay galvanized. Understand that our future is at stake here. This is a big deal. Yeah, totally agree with you. Tony, let me turn around and say it's great to see you again, my friend. We're going to have to have our coffee again very, very soon. I always look forward uh, to that. And I look forward to, you know, your just clear insight on <laughs> emotions, all things Trump related. Thank you. And definitely need to have you back on the show very, very Thank soon. Thank you very much. And now for today's mea culpa. Last week, the world waited with bated breath as the Epstein files dribbled out and reminded the public once again that a child molester and sex trafficker was in bed with some of the richest and most powerful people of the last several decades. In the first evidence dump, there weren't many surprises. David Copperfield, Michael Jackson, some royalty, Alan Dershowitz, and two former presidents. I mean, not bad for a scumbag who sold sex and secrets and God knows what else. But the mystery surrounding this guy will never be fully resolved. We will probably never really know if he killed himself or he was just whacked. Bill Ball was first on the scene directly after Epstein was found dead in his jail cell. And we all know he's adept at cleaning up a mess. But it hasn't escaped me that Jean-Luc Brunel, a French modeling agent suspected of scouting girls for Epstein, also killed himself in a Paris jail cell in 2022 while awaiting trial on rape allegations. I mean, that's quite a fucking coincidence, don't you think? Epstein's victims will never recoup their innocence or probably much money when all is said and done. There were celebrities and philanthropists included in the documents too, but Epstein covered his ass by being culturally elite and a well-known benefactor of the arts and science. He caught Bill Gates in his web by funding world health and hunger initiatives. And then... Then there were the perks, the plane, the homes, the island. I mean, Epstein got away with it because powerful people were complicit. They probably were not all perverts, but we know he collected tape and evidence on those who indulged in his sick pleasures. It's funny how those tapes have somehow disappeared. I mean, we might ask Bill Barr where he put them. Anyway, Epstein only ended up serving 18 months in 2008 for recruiting an underage girl for prostitution after he struck a plea deal with U.S. Attorney Alexander Acosta to avoid being charged with any federal crimes. Acosta later paid for that with his job, yeah, yeah, and he was forced to resign when Epstein was arrested in 2019. 
But it's no coincidence that Trump has tapped Acosta to be his labor secretary. You know what we say? Birds of a fucking feather. Yeah, and all that, they fucking flock together. The hard part to wrap your head around are the women he engaged to do his dirty work. You have Ghislaine Maxwell, who will do 20 years for recruiting young girls for Epstein to sexually exploit. Sarah Kellen, his former assistant, was both his victim and his accomplice. I mean, these are only the first in more than 200 documents that are expected to be unsealed over the next few days. And there will be more. But Epstein is the canary in the coal mine. He is just one guy who is doing this shit for himself and his friends to gain influence and have a good time. But sex trafficking is happening everywhere in America and right under our noses. It's not just the rich. In fact, it's more often the poor and middle class who become victims and then later the victimizers. There's an excellent article this week in Rolling Stone by Alex Morris that I encourage you to check out. It's about a former FBI undercover agent, Nikki Bedellato, who led the FBI's child exploitation task force targeting heinous criminals and sex traffickers. She wants Americans to know the real truth about underage sex crimes. And believe me, it's not all Epstein and glamour. It's the fucking guy next door. It's a tough subject, but the more that we understand about it, the more that we can stop it. That's what we need to do. It's the more that we can each and every one of us do to stop it. So take care, my friends, and as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is written by Paula Killen. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Mea Culpa is a Midas Touch podcast. Executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group. This is my Smile.